When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, and welcome to Everything is Fine, a podcast for women over 40. I'm Talia Bacassis. And I'm Kim France. So I know we're excited about all our guests, which is by design. We don't book someone unless we love or admire them or both. And this week is a big, big, big love and admire. (laughs) Kim and I both love this guest's writing, and I know she gives me that particular feeling that a brilliant writer can convey, which is... I feel like she and I should be best friends. Listeners, we have Claire Dieter on the show. Hi, Claire. Hi there. What a nice introduction. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Thank you. Um, I'll read your bio, too. Um, Claire is the author of two critically acclaimed memoirs, Love and Trouble, A Midlife Reckoning, and Poser, My Life in 23 Yoga Poses. Claire is at work on Monsters, a nonfiction book investigating good art made by bad people, based on her essay for the Paris Review, What Do We Do with the Art of Monstrous Men? The essay went globally viral, (laughs) was a long-form best essay of the year, and has repeatedly been cited as one of the most influential and insightful pieces of writing on the Me Too movement to date. And Claire lives on an island in Puget Sound with her husband and their children, and she has warned us that her internet may die. (laughs) (laughs) So, Claire, what I loved about your book is that right off... Oh, I'm talking about Love and Trouble. What I loved about your book is that right off the bat, it got to this key thing that I think many women think and are ashamed of, is that you can work very hard to get somewhere, be that in your career or as a mother, and you can know that it's right for you and it's the thing you want. But often, once you get there, it can still feel like a disappointment, Um, Can you talk about that? Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't sort of expressed it quite like that to myself. I think that disappointment 
and frustration are the notes that book opens on. Sort of here you are, you did everything right. You did everything you were supposed to do, everything you wanted to do. You ended up where you wanted to be. And yet, you know, there's still this yearning and this angst. And I guess the question of the book was, where does that feeling come from? Why do we have that feeling? Hmm. And I'm not sure the book answers it. <laughs> um, I became really interested in just not so much the the solution to the problem, but the fact that the problem seemed to be so universal. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I would talk to people about that feeling, and I I just think of it as this look I would see in people's eyes. Like I would start talking about that sense of yearning or sense of this isn't quite it, and women would look at me with this just particular thousand yard gaze in their eyes. And it, it was something I grew to recognize throughout my 40s. Mm-hmm. Like, this is not exactly what I thought it would be. Yeah. And that sounds like a small thing. But what I felt and what I saw was, was something bigger, some bigger, wilder, more uncomfortable, more profound yearning. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. You talk about how to be young is to be manipulating the other, charming the other, worrying what the other thinks of me. Does that mean that part of the freedom of getting older is worrying less about the other and caring more about yourself? Well, I think that that was sort of one of the crux points of the opening of Love and Trouble was, you know, what you just said, one would hope, but that is not what happened to me. I was still having this yearning Mm -hmm. for affirmation from the other. I was still looking to get that same kind of um, sense of being okay through my connection to someone else, still looking for male approval. I mean, I gave the manuscript to a friend when I was working on it, and she gave the manuscript back to me, and she said, huh, well, you do realize you've written an entire book about the need for male approval, right? And I was like, Mm -hmm. oh, Oh, no. (laughs) Not what I, you know, really wanted to have exposed about myself. Do you think it's also that in capitalism, we... Oh, good. We got here right away. I'm delighted. (laughs) (laughs) that, That we are... We're made to be in a permanent state of desire. We're always wanting things and that you are made to always be wanting things and wanting something else. Um, And that makes you permanently feel unsatisfied. You can cut this pause out later. I have to think about that. I thought your internet died. I did too. (laughs) I'm right here. I just, um, in the time since I finished writing this book, I think that like a lot of people, I've grown more and more aware, how to put this, I've been more, I've grown more and more aware of how the material circumstances of our lives shape our emotions, right? So Mm -hmm. like what I'm saying is I've become more of a commie. I've become more (laughs) critical of capitalism and of my role in capitalism. Part of that has happened because I have children who have grown up as, you know, really have been raised by Bernie and the dirtbag left, right? I have these children who are very radical Mm -hmm. and they've Mm -hmm. guided me into really rethinking my relationship to the market, to capitalism, to politics, all that stuff. And, um, that's all happened since I finished writing Love and Trouble. All of which is a long way of saying, I think you're right. I think that desire is something that needs to be eternally propagated to keep the whole machine up and running. 
You had a quote by the writer Nancy Lehman um, that it may be called Death Valley, but the minute you get there, you're as you're subsumed by a vast and incongruous gaiety. And you wrote that you could replace the word Death Valley by midlife, and it would be accurate. So it'd be midlife. The minute you get there, you're subsumed by a vast and incongruous gaiety. Can you talk about the paradox of feeling this sort of sense of deep yearning, but also elation? A lot of what I'm dealing with in the book is this like creeping sense of irresponsibility, you know, the sort of fuck all y'all quality that, (laughs) that overtook me in my forties. And, um, you know, there's a way in which I had been such a good solid citizen through much of my uh, late twenties and thirties and my young mothering days. And all of a sudden I, I sort of, really, I really sort of woke up in my 40s and thought, wow, what happened to the young person I used to be who was so wild and so full of trouble and so um, such a risk taker, you know, and Mm -hmm. had a lot of very male qualities of always being pushing, always wanting to do the riskiest thing. And in my 40s, all of a sudden, I remembered her. I remembered that girl I had been. And and I have this image of me sort of saluting her across the decades. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of what I missed about that girl was that wild sense of fun. And Mm -hmm. pursuing a wild kind of fun when you're in your 40s or or trying to have gaiety when you're in your 40s is a much more complicated thing because you're... It's hard. Right? You've got the apparatus of the life that you've (laughs) built that you're sort of taking with you everywhere you're going to have fun. It's like this giant uh, cumbersome scaffold around you. And it's hard to find. Yeah, I, I remember the exact moment I realized... I was in my 40s, and a certain kind of wildness was no longer appropriate. Or available. Or available, yeah, absolutely. What was that moment? Tell us, yeah. (laughs) It was when I worked at Condé Nast, and part of the deal was that in my job, you got to pick whatever car you wanted. So I got an Audi convertible, a two-seater. And I used to drive around listening to music really loud, and I was like oh, wait, this is kind of uncool now. (laughs) (laughs) You're that woman dancing at the wedding. I was that woman dancing at the wedding. And it was, it's like something fell away. And it was like an instant. It was like, oh, yeah, that you, you don't do that anymore. Like that. Did it change how you how you live or just how you thought of yourself. It changed my expectations somehow. There was some sense of like, um, anything can happen that went away. Hmm. But I'm even listening to myself and seeing the woman dancing at the wedding and picturing you in your Audi convertible and thinking, why not? Just do it. Like, who the fuck cares, you know? True. Yeah, who cares? I didn't give the car back, that's for sure. <laughs> Um, Tally, you were saying something about that kind of fun is no longer available, not just unacceptable. Well, I was looking at my kids the other day, having so much fun in this apple orchard, picking apples and laughing and running and even coming home and saying, that was so much fun and thinking to myself, when do I think that? Like, Hmm. honestly, it usually involves alcohol, you know, getting together with friends and drinking and letting loose in a way like alcohol 
provides the uh, means to get to a place where you're so loose and laughing so much that you can have the kind of fun that your kids have. Yeah. Yeah, but it's hard to come by. I do think it's really tied to alcohol. And I think that alcohol is also tied to those moments that Kim's talking about where you're suddenly thinking, is this appropriate? Mm-hmm. You know, oh, is totally. this who I want to be? I uh, Maybe I mentioned the woman dancing at the wedding because I am that woman. Um, <laughs> because I had a moment at a house party, I think it was about a year ago, and I really, really like to dance. And all my friends know this about me, and I really let loose when I've been drinking, and a house party is like my safest possible space. And a friend of a friend, like the next day or something, because somebody's daughters were there. I don't remember one of my friend's daughters and her friends. And they had seen me and they said something to their mom about me, like, oh, and that woman and she was dancing to Bruno Mars. Like, can you believe it or something? <laughs> like, how embarrassing. And I was, I felt so small and mm. so mm. like, oh, they just took that away from me because I was having so much fun. And I was obviously embarrassing. And fuck them. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have two thoughts about this. Like, first of all, there's something very wrong with not dancing to Bruno Mars, right? Like, <laughs> that's I mean, our... It was a really bad song, whatever it was. <laughs> but second of all, I, you know, I think a lot about trying to express why I quit drinking. Because I wasn't, you know, when I, I was one of those people when I quit, Everybody said, what? You didn't seem to have a problem. You know, sort of, I've had a lot of arguments about me having quit drinking, right? And Mm -hmm, of -hmm. course, that has a kernel in the other person always, because if I quit, does that mean they have a problem, right? Because Mm -hmm. I was so, you know, fairly within the realm of what was acceptable. But listening to what you're saying, Tally, it gives me a hint at one of the reasons I quit. And that's that I wanted to be able to have fun in that way and let go in that way. And as Kim said, fuck them all, like say fuck them and do what I wanted and not feel like the reason for that was out of my control. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm right? Like that that was a choice. And it wasn't something that I did by accident. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, it's both in in the case of the dancing, because I usually want to dance. But you're right, like, I can't get there until I've consumed enough alcohol. Right. And how would you have felt the next day if you'd overheard them and they were saying that and you hadn't been drinking the night before? I I don't know. But I would Mm. guess that your response would have been more like Kim's like, fuck them. Yeah, yeah, no, true. You have a chapter called, brilliantly, The, you know, Encroaching Darkness, (laughs) which is amazing. It's mostly about naps, but can you talk about what the encroaching darkness means to you? I think that it was this growing sense of one's own death, right? Like you're, you start to have this awareness of it. And um, I think for a lot of women that comes in their 40s, I was talking to a friend who, um, who runs an Everest expedition company. And Mm. he said that there are two dangerous types of people to try to take up the mountain. One type of person is a man in his 60s, and the other type of person is a woman in her 40s. Fuck, I knew you were going to say that. And I was like, that can't be, that can't be. Why? (laughs) (laughs) Why? I do think it has to do with coming to the end of your 
you know, sort of biologically determined uh, usefulness, mm-hmm. and your, which is then tied to your sense of your own obsolescence, right? So once you have your sense of your own obsolescence or the, you know, impending darkness, then, you know, it's Katie bar the door. It's fuck it all. It's I'm going to do whatever, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to fly in the face of death with, as my mother would say, a hey, nani, nani, right? And, <laughs> wow. and then the next thing you know, you're making some bad decisions on Mount Everest. It's like the, the snow, the blizzard, and you're like, no, we must keep going. Exactly. <laughs> Onward. I have to do this before I die. This is wow. my chance, right? That's the, that's the howl. This is my chance. This is my chance. I'm not going back and saying that I didn't do it. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It makes perfect sense. Hmm. Yeah, when you think about it. Was it scary to release this book into the world? Because you talk about things like your possibly diminishing competence, which I feel sometimes, but were you nervous about putting that out there? Yeah, I've never had somebody bring up the possibly diminishing competence as the part that should make me nervous. Usually it's more focused on the sex parts. But um, uh, but probably the wiser thing to be nervous about was confessing my diminished competence. <laughs> this was a really interesting book to release because it's so, you know, we talk in writing all the time about trying to be vulnerable. Um, mm. And uh, this book is just ridiculously vulnerable, right? It's yeah. just, it's it's out there. And um, I worked so hard on this book. I worked on it for many, many years. I had failures with it as I tried to get it out into the world. You know, I switched publishers. I struggled with different drafts. I put my all into it. You know, I left it all on the ice. I put every single thing I knew how to do into this book. And so when I went out with it, I didn't feel nervous. I felt excited about what I had made. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I felt less like the person being depicted in the book than I felt like the writer who had made something I was really proud of. Mm-hmm. You should be, yeah. Thanks, and 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 that even went in terms of criticism. You know, I felt like I knew I had done what I set out to do, and that was this really. Um, that was like an armor. And I remember somebody saying to me on Facebook, of course, right after um, it came out, something about like, "Oh, you're naked in the town square." You know, I just thought the most pretentious thing possible, which is, "I'm not naked. I'm clothed in my art." but that's how i felt right (sighs) this idea was very funny but also true that maybe a woman's version of a midlife crisis involves stopping doing stuff because we do so much stuff first of all i think that that's ultimately a feminist critique um Mm -hmm. i think that that is probably one of the more feminist ideas in this book is Wait, just which part the, the the idea that maybe we ought to just stop doing stuff you okay. know the reason that that's the woman's midlife crisis is because of a role that's been asked of her right i mean that's mm-hmm. that's the part where you're you're behaving in a way that's determined by exterior forces rather than what you maybe really want to do that's a person who's not being supported or met by the societal familial structures around her, right? Mm -hmm. That's the person who feels that way. And I think that that idea of stopping and resting is so incredibly radical. And Mm -hmm. I think it's really anti-capitalist. I don't know if you guys know the work of this um, Instagram account and Twitter account, The Nap Ministry, 
Yeah, everybody's talking about this lately. Yeah, it's really interesting. And it's definitely centered toward, you know, black people and especially black women and people of color. Like, you don't have to be doing something all the time to earn your right to exist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I realize that's a really um, racially charged idea, but it's something we can all think about. Well, when I think about it, I also think about it in gender terms, which is how you started the answer, um, just talking about all the things, let's say, that I do in my household to prop everybody else up kind right. of thing. And, and even, Kim, you remember Darcy Stanky talked about this in her interview about menopause. Like, I'm not going to do all the fucking things for everybody all the time. And so maybe when you are at this point in your life, you feel like just dialing it back because you're, I mean, is what we said at the beginning, you're doing too much. Well, it reminds me of what some of my friends said when they first had children, which was that they thought they, you know, were feminists, they thought they married sympathetic men, men who were down with the cause, and then they had children and they became 50s housewives. Exactly. I think that that is the key of it. And that's what I was trying stri- you said that so much better than I did what I was struggling yeah. to say earlier. <laughs> what I was struggling to say earlier is this idea that you stop being the human that you are in what you think is going to be an equitable relationship and you become this role. Right. Mm-hmm. It was interesting. A couple of years ago I was asked to do an essay or last year I was asked to do an essay for Mother's Day by the cut you know, what would I tell my young mother self? Oh, God. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, (laughs) I'm sure that they thought my answer would be like, slow down, take it easy, enjoy the kids. And I was like, like, burn it all down. Exactly. (laughs) You must, you must stop this now. You must Mm -hmm. stop allowing this to happen to you. You must stop this unequal division of labor. You have to make it stop now because it's only going to get worse. And what I thought about was the way that when you become a mother, you think, you're, you think you and your partner are exploring this new world together and you're moving freely and you're you know, exploring together and you're going to be these parents that are bravely going where no parents have gone before. And what you find is you're basically in a unicursal labyrinth where the path has been set so long before you and you're trapped in it. And everywhere Mm -hmm. you think you're making a decision or a choice, you're just following the preset path. It's like the tramway track where you just can't get off it. But you're on it and you think you're acting with free will. That's the really scary part. (laughs) Happy Mother's Day. Yeah, happy Mother's Mm -hmm. Day. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, one thing that you do, which I think I want to take into my life, which is you plan escape hatches and you go away with your friend Victoria, just you two, like a girl's weekend on a regular basis. Was that something that you planned? Like, okay, I need escape hatches. This is what it's going to be. Like, why did you decide to do that? It was more like uh, an erupting volcano or something more, <laughs> something more disruptive. Like I've got to get out of here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that my life during this particular era that this book of Love and Trouble, that my life was so um, structured, and then there would be this drive to escape that structure. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, so I can recommend that for sure. Maybe plan them, maybe plan for this kind of need for escape, rather than having it overtake you. Yeah, I texted my best friend while I was reading it saying, like, we need to plan more trips. <laughs> well, and I think that ultimately the book is really a romance between me and Victoria. I know. Yeah. Yeah, that's really true. 
I think there's two things that don't get written about, and that's work and friendship in memoir. You just don't see as many memoirs about them as I'd like to see. So I wanted to write about that kind of sustenance that you get from friendship. Because it's really important, right? Yeah, I mean, in my life, it's the most important. You know, I don't, right. I don't have a partner. I don't have children. You know, friends are really where it's at. Mm-hmm. Are you writing about that? I am writing about that. Um, it's, it's hard to write about. If you are a person who doesn't have children and divorces or never married... You're on a different cycle than all of your friends who begin to be friends with their kids' friends' parents and the school parents. And it makes it so that, you know, at middle age, you like your, your circles get smaller and smaller and smaller. So friendships are really central to me. And at the same time, I have fewer than them than I've ever had. I think they're better than they ever were, but I definitely have fewer. I think that constriction happens for everyone. I was going to say, too, I have fewer also, yeah. I do, too. I don't think it's special to me. But I do think that maybe being aware of the importance of friendship is actually, you know, worth reflecting on, right? Yeah. Like, valuing it in that way is something that we could all do a better job of, and that I think that's part of, you know, this love and trouble is ending in that moment of friendship. The book ends focusing not on a relationship with a man, but on me and Victoria, I'm sorry, Victoria and I, you know, sort of venturing forth into the world together. That was almost prescriptive note to self. Right. Like, focus on this. This is good. Mm -hmm. This is what you need. You know, I didn't love the TV show Girls, but one thing that I did really like about it was the passion of the friendships. Mm Mm-hmm. I agree. It felt really, really true and like something that you don't see an awful lot of. Right, or like another television show. And of course, we're... Yeah, anyway, whatever. We're talking about television shows. Um, Did you guys see uh, Doll and M? Yes, yes. It was wonderful. A fantastic, such a good show. Yes. And strictly about female friendship Mm -hmm. and completely ignored. Totally not heralded in the press at all. Nobody wrote about it. All right, we're going to take a quick break here and we'll be back in a sec. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Support for Everything is Fine comes from Ritual. So I love Ritual. Everyone knows I love Ritual. I talk about Ritual all the time. I particularly love its daily, their daily multivitamin, and I also really have been enjoying their melatonin. 
But the thing I love most about Ritual is their Hia Sera. It's a once daily skin supplement that's clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. In a clinical study, Hyacera led to 3.6 times reduction in crow's feet wrinkles within 90 days as compared to a placebo. Hyacera led to 2.9 times increase in skin smoothness within 90 days as compared to a placebo. You can enhance your skincare routine from the inside out with one daily capsule essenced with soothing vanilla. I love Hyacera. It's been rigorously tested and validated. It's one of the industry-leading sustainability. It, it meets, sorry, all of the industry-leading sustainability standards. You know I'm a beauty editor now. I am all about keeping my face plump, and Hyacera absolutely has done that for me. I've been on it for months. I don't even know how long, and I can really see a difference in the texture of my skin. My skin looks more juicy, I guess, is the best way to do it. Say it, do it. Ah. Okay, so you can start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash fine. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription to get today. That's ritual.com slash fine for 25% off. Welcome back to Everything is Fine. You wrote this almost blockbuster article, which, dear listeners, if you have not read it, press pause right now and go read it, then come back. Um, it was about monstrous men who make art and the disconnect we sometimes feel in appreciating their art. There are so many of them, Roman Polanski, Woody Allen, Michael Jackson, R. Kelly. And for me, it was only after watching Finding Neverland, that doc about Michael Jackson, that I was really able to cancel Michael Jackson for myself. Anyway, just getting into my own like feelings around this. What can you tell us about the thesis of your book? Um, I, I love the idea that my book has a thesis. I'm really excited about that. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I'm still revising the book, so it's not submitted yet. The thesis is basically that we all bring such an intensely subjective experience to each artist. When a woman comes to work like that and says, wow, I really don't want to consume this work. This feels horrible. There's a response often, which is, well, that's just your own bias. But of course, every person who consumes art has a bias and an experience they're bringing to it. And so I think there's this sort of model we have that we should have a disinterested approach when we come to art. Mm -hmm. And that disinterested approach is often the approach of the white male critic consuming the white male artist's work. So what I'm really talking about in the book is the idea that, like, let's have an interested approach to the work. Let's own our subjective experience. Let's admit what we love. Let's admit what we hate. Let's acknowledge and be in our emotions around the work and know that the story of the artist is affecting how we consume it. You know, the story of what Michael Jackson has done is affecting what we see, but our story's also affecting it. You know, any cons consumption of a work of art is two biographies meeting, the mm -hmm. audiences and the artists. And to pretend otherwise is just total folly. So do you mean also that, like, let's say when I brought up Michael Jackson, I mean, Woody Allen is the better example in a way because... Um, 
I related exactly to what you were talking about, which is that I felt very much that Woody Allen was my artist. I watched Annie Hall anytime I was sick. I would just lie in bed and watch Annie Hall. It was my favorite, favorite movie. So are you saying that like all of that history that I bring to watching the movie is also how I'm interpreting the movie? Yeah, I think that what you're describing is love, right? Yeah, yeah. You love Woody Allen. Sorry to say that so bluntly, but um, I know it's uncomfortable. But I don't anymore. That's what I feel like. I don't anymore. I I had a transformation, much the same as the Michael Jackson thing that I described. That when I read the account of the blow by blow of what he did to Dylan Farrow, I was able to shut off the love, and I threw the DVDs out in the garbage. Well, let's let's take apart what you just said. Were you able to shut off the love, or did the love just shut itself off? Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think one image that I've been working with a lot is the idea of a stain, right? So mm. the, the book opens with this image of the monster. Here's this terrible person. Here's Roman Polanski, who did this awful thing. Should we consume the art? And mm. I think the idea of the stain is really useful. And again, it goes back to Michael Jackson. Okay, so you hear, I want you back, right? Which is just a great song. And it's a great song that was recorded before he did whatever he did that was terrible, right? And yet, that song is colored by what we know. So there's this stain that sort of spreads out. And you don't get to choose whether or not that stain is there. It's just there. So I think so much of the dialogue around this is coercive. It's like, I think Manhattan is a masterpiece, so you should think Manhattan's a masterpiece. And it's like, it's too late. The stain happened. Saying it didn't mm-hmm. happen doesn't help anything. It doesn't mm-hmm. change anything. It's, it's already occurred. The question is, and also the love has occurred. All those years you had identifying with Woody Allen, relating to him, sort of seeing, I mean, one of the weird things about Manhattan for a young woman is that I relate to the Woody character, not to the Marielle character, right? Uh-huh. In retrospect, of course, I relate to the Marielle character. But Woody, I thought of him as a kindred spirit, right? That's mm-hmm. his job. Mm-hmm. The stain colors it, but the love colors it too. And I think that there's not a right thing or a wrong thing to do. Every person gets to make their own decision. And I don't think that judgment comes into it. I think we, we're all operating out of these super individual experiences. Hmm. What do you say to people, mostly men, who, when talking about the relationship in, Man- in Manhattan in particular, say that you have to judge it on aesthetics? Like, what the fuck do you say to that? I think that the idea of aesthetics is a hugely problematic, it's just a problematic word, aesthetics. Because what does it mean? What are they saying when they say judge it on aesthetics? They're saying that there's some ideal of beauty that it fulfills, that it floats free of all of the human concerns represented in the film. Manhattan is a work made by a middle-aged white man and then white men are telling you to judge it on aesthetics (laughs) Mm -hmm. that's because they don't understand or see the subjectivity with which it's made and with which they're consuming it because they're like it's the water they're swimming in right right They think that that's pure aesthetics, but it's really that they're locked into the same subjectivity as the piece of work itself. Right. Right? Whoa. Yeah. 
I think it's really interesting that the preoccupation with the individual response to the work, right? Like it gets back to that idea that when we're in a capitalist system, we're asked over and over to use our consumer choices to make things better, right? Mm -hmm. Like, okay, well, if you stop using plastic straws, then we'll solve climate change. It's like, you know what? I'm not the problem here. Come on, buddy. (laughs) And I think that we can think of this problem in, in a similar way. It's like, yes, we can make choices and we can tear our hair out over whether or not we're going to listen to David Bowie once we know he had sex with a 14 year old. But there's a larger problem that has to do with institutional decision making and who institutions prop up. It's so convenient for big corporations to make you feel like it's your personal responsibility to recycle and that if you recycled more, that would be the problem where they are major polluters and they are responsible for carbon emissions and all these things and that I should still be recycling, you know, like it's not that one is wrong and the other one is right. It's that they're both part of the same system. First of all, it doesn't have to be an either or right? Like, I agree, like, go ahead and recycle. Or Mm -hmm. don't and I don't use plastic straws. But (laughs) wouldn't our time and energy be so much better spent not talking about straws, and talking about how we can bring pressure to bear on leaders and corporations to make more moral and ethical choices when it comes to real issues like you know, energy use, how they ship things, the kind of tax breaks they get, all that stuff is so Mm -hmm. much more impactful. Mm -hmm. Ugh, I just used the word impactful. (laughs) (laughs) I do think that in terms of the art problem, I really do think these are important, important questions. You know, after the essay came out, I went and spoke at a university and and talked about some of these ideas about subjective experience and how you get to make the decision for yourself. And all these kids came up to me afterwards and they all said, so does this mean I still get to listen to David Bowie? Like (laughs) five kids said this to me. And and I do think these problems feel really urgent and people do want to have personal responsibility around them. They want to do the right thing. Yeah, I think that that's valuable to think about, but at the same time, it's not paramount. There's, you know, other players in this game. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned that you gave up drinking not too mm-hmm. long ago, over a year ago, I know. Two years ago. Um, how has that affected your feelings about aging and your outlook on life in general? There's kind of two things that happen when you quit drinking and that were major for me. One is... AA is sort of predicated on this idea, and Leslie Jameson has written really beautifully about this in her book, The Recovering, is you become more ordinary. Your issues, quitting drinking, your struggles could not be more ordinary. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a way in which that special howl of love and trouble, the like, oh my God, I'm confronting the the horror of me, me, me. Um, quitting drinking is sort of like, yeah, we all have that same horror. It's a thing about like, you think you're unique. You're not unique. Yes. Your story is will absolutely follow these same contours. And it's interesting because hmm. we were just talking about that in terms of parenting. And I think that, you know, thinking about that in terms of 
getting stuck in a rut as a mom, um, that was sort of horrifying and enraging and politically enraging. But the ordinariness and the non-uniqueness that comes with quitting drinking feels kind of freeing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like that old line about, you know, you for a long time, you you worry what everyone else is thinking of you, and then you realize they were never thinking about you all along. Right. There's mm-hmm. a freedom in that. Yep. I think mm-hmm. that that's a huge part of quitting drinking. And the other thing that I think is super, has been amazing for me about, I mean, quitting drinking has been an almost unmitigated good in my life. The other thing is the learning to say no. It's just this giant boundary that you're setting every day. Mm-hmm. You're saying, no, I'm not going to participate. No, I'm not going to be part of this thing that was reflexive, that everybody else does, that's so universally part of our culture, that's so normal and normative. And I'm Mm -hmm. not going to do it. And, um, you know, I am a person with serious boundary problems. And drinking taught me to have a boundary. And that's the really, really big thing it did. And it's, it's been really interesting how it's been echoed by my experience of the pandemic. Because really, the pandemic has been an exercise in boundary setting, right? Mm-hmm. Wait, do you mean that quitting drinking? Yes, quitting drinking. Boundaries? Yes, sorry, I, sh- I misspoke. Not drinking. Okay, yeah. not drinking. Yeah, drinking was okay. just about <laughs> let you know being totally enmeshed with everybody else's desires. Yeah, yeah. The pandemic really asks us to set boundaries. We all have our idea of what's right and wrong and how to move through the world in this moment, but especially because we have zero leadership. We're mm-hmm. left to set our own boundaries every day, all day long. We make decisions about boundaries. And I feel like drinking has completely prepared me for this moment, hmm. both for giving up things, but also for saying, no, I don't want to do that. No, I'm sorry. I, you know, you can't come in my house or, you know, all of these different boundaries I have to set. You have experience with uncomfortable moments now. Discomfort is something that quitting drinking finally taught me to tolerate. When I first quit and I'd want to drink, I would do something. I'd go for a walk. I'd listen to a podcast. I'd, you know, have something sweet. But ninja level is when you sit on the couch and want to drink. And you just think, okay, this is going to stop. And then you just sit there some more and then it stops. Though I'm nervous to say ninja level because I'll curse myself, right? But But that experience of just sitting there and wanting something and not being able to have it, that goes back to what Tally was talking about at the beginning of this conversation, this like mm. constant urge to fill the void. Mm-hmm. So what happens when you just sit there and say, nah? You close the loop. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even have to wrap anything up. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Claire. Thank you so much, Claire. This has been so interesting. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's great to talk to you guys. Thank you. So what should we tell people to do? Well, you can't buy the Monsters book because it's not finished yet. And you can tell from talking to me, I'm still very kind of deep in process slash up my own ass about it. Um, So that'll be a while. That'll be, you know, months or a year. Um, But they can certainly, I'd love it if people bought Love and Trouble or, or read the Paris Review essay. Thanks so much for listening to Everything is Fine. We are your hosts, Talia Bacassis and Kim France. If you like the show, be sure to rate it and write us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you have suggestions for show ideas or anything else, email us at tallyandkim at gmail.com. We also have an Instagram that is EIF Podcast, and you can find Kim on her blog, girlsofacertainage.com. 
Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 